John was born in Haddington, East Lothian, sometime between 1513 and 1515. He received his education at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, and he would go on to become a priest where he would teach and regularly tutor students. After the murder of Cardinal Beaton by the Queen of England, John returned to St. Andrews. He fled England, returned to Scotland to join with other reformers. Within a matter of months, John would be arrested and enslaved for his Protestant leadings. Eventually, he would find his way into the chaplaincy of King Edward, Edward VI, for which the, this ministry and his ministry would live on. Spending time with Calvin and Geneva and other reformers, he would be an instrumental person that would help move the Protestant Reformation forward. After the death of Queen Mary, who was then succeeded by her sister Elizabeth, he was able to go about his Protestant teachings without being threatened or arrested. By the summer of 1572, though, John was so weakened by his ailments in a recent stroke that it appeared that his journey on earth had ended. And John died November 24th, 1572. His work, by God's grace, was instrumental in reforming much of the doctrine that was perverse in the country of Scotland. He was the founder of what we know today as Presbyterianism. He stood fearlessly in the face of ruthless kings and queens and did so only by the, the grace of God. He found strength not in himself, but in God. And friend, the, the question as we consider John Knox's life, as we consider that even today, the legacy of his faithful doctrinal teaching has resulted in even many of the doctrinal stances that we take up. Friend, I wonder how you steward your time, talents, and resources for kingdom purposes. Or, how are you wasting them? How are you, like John Knox, willing to put your life on the line in order to advance the doctrine of the church? In our passage this morning, Jesus is preparing His disciples for exactly this question. How will they spend their time? How will they use their resources, their talents, to further the kingdom of God? Or how will they squander them? Jesus here is preparing His disciples and us for His return and His departure. You see, for Jesus' disciples, Jesus, as He arrives in Jerusalem, we know the end of the story. He dies and raises again and is ascended into heaven where He rules and reigns over His church. But what were the disciples to do in the in-between time between Christ's departure and His return? How were they to be behave? What were they to give themselves to? How were they to spend their time as they awaited for Him to come again? That's what we want to think about particularly this morning. And as a, a way of giving us a sense of context of our passage, we'll be reminded that beginning in verse 51 of chapter 9, uh, all the way to the end of our passage this morning in verse 26, 
Luke has organized the material around this traveling motif. And again, it's not chronological. These events did not happen in this particular order. But he has organized all of these events and interwoven these stories around Jesus' travel to Jerusalem. Chapter 9, verse 51 tells us that Jesus set His face toward Jerusalem. There was one mission that Jesus was on, and that was to die the death that sinners deserved and to raise three days later as a vindication that He completed the mission that His Father had sent Him on. And as Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, just a a mere miles from the city, we know what happens at the arrival of Jesus in the triumphal entry. When people are singing and praising Hosanna, expectations were high. It was at a fever pitch. They had understood that Jesus was the Messiah, but what they misunderstood was they thought that Jesus was coming to remove the Roman occupation, to set up the throne of David, and to reign and rule over God's people. And Jesus wants to clarify for His disciples and the followers around Him that He isn't the Messiah they are expecting. That He isn't the King that they think He will be. That Jesus came to do the work of the kingdom. A kingdom that they will continue the work of seeking and saving the lost. I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 19. Today we're going to consider verses 11 through 27. The parable of the ten minus. Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. And they heard these things. He proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that they may know what, that he may know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you have authority over ten cities." And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I have kept laid in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you do not deposit and reap what you do not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words. You wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? 
And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Well, friends, as we consider this text this morning, uh, there is one main idea that Jesus is seeking to teach his disciples, and it is this. Remain faithful by investing in kingdom work. Jesus here is teaching his disciples to remain faithful, to remain faithful by investing in kingdom work. And that when this king returns, when he returns, he will reward those who were faithful. And he will punish those who were unfaithful. And so really the purpose of our time as we consider this text this morning is to evaluate our stewardship of kingdom resources. To evaluate our stewardship of our time, talents, and resources in light of kingdom purposes. How are you stewarding these things? Are you being faithful or unfaithful? You see, as Christians, we understand that we live in between the already and the not yet. That we live between the first and second coming of Christ. And we affirm that Jesus Christ will come again one day, perhaps today, perhaps tomorrow, perhaps another thousand years. One day, Christ will come. And the question for us is how will you steward your time between His first and second coming? How will you give yourself to serving His kingdom? How will you conduct yourself as you wait for Jesus to come again? Now, our parable this morning unfolds really in two ways. Uh, it hinges on the delay and return of the nobleman. There is, if you will, a delay and a day. A delay in his return and the day that when he returns. And Jesus uses this as a window into the life of the disciple. He prepares his servants for his departure and upon his delayed return assesses their business dealings. And this morning I hope for us to take away really three main lessons that that we as disciples are to learn. The first takeaway that I hope to show you this morning is that as disciples, we have joined the family business. That if we understand this passage in the context of where Luke has placed it, as disciples, we are in the family business. And secondly, we will see uh, this principle, that the faithful servants will be rewarded. You can be encouraged this morning that when you leverage your, your time and energy and resources for the kingdom of God, you will be rewarded. You'll be rewarded far beyond what you gave. But thirdly and tragically, we see also that the disobedient will be judged. Wow. 
ask your neighbor, make sure he's still alive, that his heart didn't stop. Yes, yes. <laughs> Hope we didn't lose anyone. Perhaps we regained some that had fallen asleep. Here they are. Welcome. We're in Luke chapter 19. <laughs> Hope you find it soon. We see lastly, we'll see lastly, that those who are foolish and squander away will be judged when Jesus returns. Now, Luke, as he's done throughout many of these parables, helps us as interpreters to understand the point of the passage. So if you have your Bibles open, just look there at verse 11. And you'll find there that Luke reveals what the main idea is. In other words, he gives us the lens by which we are to understand everything that follows. Look what Luke records. As they heard these things, he proceeded, that is Jesus, proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was a, would appear immediately. Well, what had they heard? What was it that they had heard that had amped them up a bit? Well, it was earlier in his encounter with the Pharisees back in chapter 17. The question that the Pharisees posed to Jesus there when they said, when will the kingdom of God come? When will the kingdom of God come? And Jesus responded by saying, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. And so he begins to unfold. Well, how will we see it? Well, the blind, they'll see. And the deaf will hear. And the lame will walk. And Jesus will summons them to repentance and faith. And through this aspect where Jesus is saving sinners and transferring them into His kingdom, this is how the kingdom of God unfolds. And so this question is still rolling around in their minds. When will we see the kingdom of God? Well, we know that throughout the Gospel of Luke, the disciples have this kind of anticipation that Jesus has come to finally and fully remove this Roman occupation. In fact, even at His ascension in Acts chapter 1, they ask Him this question, Lord, will You at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? It's important to understand these over-realized eschatology that they, were, they were, had this, this wrong idea of the kingdom of God. The historic context for this particular parable is important as well. About 30 years earlier from Jesus' ministry here, Herod the Great had died. And he split up his kingdom into his little, he had a little mini empire, and he divided it among, among his sons. And he gave Ju Judah and Samaria, where we're at in our text, to his son Archelaus. But Herod's bequeathal were ultimately subject to Roman approval. Because the Romans were really in charge of the land, uh, Achilles had to go to Rome. He had to go and acquire his kingdom. And when he returned, what he found was that the people did not want him to be king. 
you'll be reminded that his dad tried to kill all the children there in Israel, all the boys there in Bethlehem. Of course they didn't want his son to be king. He was a quite wicked man. And before he left to go to Rome, there was a mass murder of over 3,000 Jews during the Passover. The Jews of Jerusalem and the surrounding areas did not care for much of Herod the Great's murderous ways, and they were not very thrilled about his son ruling over them. And so as Jesus here is telling this parable to these people, they would have remembered Archelaus going to Rome. They would have remembered the delegation of 50 men that were sent up there to plead with Caesar, we do not want this man to be our king. And the very same thing that happened to Archelaus is the very same thing that's happening to Jesus. It is truly the story of Israel that they struggle to accept the king that God gives them. That they often want their own king rather than the king that God provides. And it is with this backdrop in mind that Jesus then tells this familiar story and applies these spiritual principles to them. We see in verses 11 through 14 that the disciples were to be a part of the family business. Again, just to walk through this parable a, a bit to understand it to our 21st century mind, this is quite strange. We are told about a, a nobleman. Of course, Jesus is representative of that nobleman. He is going away and then he will return. Well, in the time in between, this nobleman enlists ten servants and gives each of them a mina. Now, most of us in this room are are, are scrambling to figure out, well, what is a mina? A mina was about three to four months' wages. So, a significant sum of money, even if you consider this morning, uh, you take maybe $12 an hour divided by 40 uh, times three months, maybe four months. You're, you're talking in the neighborhood of six, maybe even upwards of $8,000. A significant sum of money, no, no less. And, and so we are told that the servants have this, and, and notice with me here, the end of verse 13. He said to them, engage in business until I come. Notice the imperative, engage, do business until I come. It wasn't that they were to start out and do a little business and then take the rest of the day off or the rest of the time off. Rather, their entire life was to be, until he returned, taken up with this business, uh, whatever this particular business dealing is. And, And we see that some of the servants were fruitful and some of the servants were less fruitful. We understand then the sort of aspect that Jesus is teaching here. Perhaps some of you understand the, one of the wonders of compound interest. I remember many years ago as a, as a young college student learning this, that, that if you were to take, say, $5,000 and invest that $5,000 and you did that for five years as a young 18-year-old, that when you retired 50 years later, that you would have over a million dollars. Just from a small investment would create an abundant investment. And this is in a sense of what we see here in this passage, that these men were to invest, were to be about business in order to make a profit. 
The main idea is that we understand that Jesus' followers were those who were to be about the family business. Well, what is the family business of a disciple? Well, friend, it is exactly what we see in verse 10 that preceded. Why did Jesus come? Well, Jesus told us, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. We need to understand that Jesus isn't just sort of leaving that behind. But rather, He's making emphatically clear that His disciples had a job to do. They had a responsibility. There was work to be done. That They weren't just to go on to a perpetual vacation until Jesus came again. But rather, they were to engage in business. They were to be about seeking and saving the lost just as Jesus indicates this is the purpose of His coming. That you and I, as Christians, we have a job to do. Our job isn't literally to save someone through our own atoning work, but rather to share the gospel with those around us. That is the primary task of every individual Christian and every corporate gathering of a local church. Local churches can be involved in wonderful, different, and varied ministries, but the primary ministry of a local church is to seek and to save the lost. This is why we don't graduate from the gospel, that we continually call sinners every Lord's Day and every day in between the Lord's Days to repentance and faith. We are about the gospel, about calling sinners, summoning sinners to repentance and faith. And and not only corporately, but individually as Christians, we ought to be about these things. We ought to spend our days waiting for Jesus to come again, evangelizing the lost people around us. Friend, how many lost people do you know? How many sinners do you know need to be saved from the wrath of God that is coming towards them? That if they are not rescued by the atoning work of Christ, that their future, well, is verse 27, as they are slaughtered before the King upon His return. We also see here in verse 15, or rather in in verse 14, that there was a delegation that did not want this man to reign over us. There was a a delegation of individuals, and it is a reminder, isn't it, a bit of context, that we go about the family business in a world that is hostile to our king. If you've been a Christian for a number of years, you've no doubt seen how this world is in opposition to Jesus. That this entire world, that our government, that the governments of the world, that the people that represent the various kingdoms of this world, friends, they have no desire for Jesus to be king over them. Surely they can use Christian language. They can even say they believe in God. 
But when it comes down to submitting to Jesus as the ultimate and supreme authority, no government will ever do that. Because that means that they would have to subject themselves to someone more supreme or more sovereign than them. And every nation is sovereign, and so they don't want to bow the knee to some other kingdom that's greater and more powerful to them. Friend, this world is not warming up to Jesus. Despite the conversation you hear right now about Christian nationalism and about how Christians, how this world is you know, becoming more and more like Christ, friend, this world will never, ever This world is in opposition. And Jesus makes this point emphatically clear here in this parable. There will always be people who hate that He is King. But, we go about our business. We go about the work and faithfulness in order that we might receive a reward. This is what we see then in verses 15 through 19. As Jesus unfolds this parable, He's doing so to instruct His disciples, to encourage them in their business. Go about the family business. Seek and save the lost. And if you do, friend, you'll be rewarded richly. Notice what He says there in verse 15. When He returned. No no doubt, I I would imagine uh, Charles Spurgeon or Others like them perhaps preached a whole sermon on those three words, when he returned. As we dig back into this, I hope you don't miss this reality that Jesus is coming again. He will return. You can guarantee that. And I know perhaps you don't think he's going to return. No, no, he is going to return. And Jesus here is making this point. When he returned, having received the kingdom, now we're in trouble. He's now king. He ordered, notice this language, the verbal aspects of these, that he ordered. He is a king, isn't he? He's he's demanding, come, these servants to whom I have given the money, which was his money, given to them to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. He wanted to see the books. Let's see the books. What have you been doing? Now, there are only three servants mentioned. Of course, there was ten. So we understand that these three men were representative of the whole. We, we don't have the assessment of all ten. But we see the first one came, and he said, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. A tenfold return. I mean, this is a significant return on the initial investment. One became ten. But notice here, the reward does not match the return. The man invested and did business with three to four months wages. And the return on the investment was significant. But friend, we are to understand, look here what he gets. Lord, your mina has made ten more, he said to him. Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. 
Now, before we get too far, I don't want you to, we, we don't want to read too much into this story, all right? This is a parable, all right? So, so we don't want to kind of uh, get confused here too much into the weeds. The point isn't that disciples get to rule ten cities or ten worlds or whatever, you know, wrong theology might that be born out of this, but, but rather that when you're faithful in really small ways, Jesus is going to bless you beyond what you deserve. That this man, yes, he did wonderful, tenfold. He, he took one and made ten. But he gets ten cities because of that? Even Jesus' words indicate that the main idea is the generosity of the master king over his people. We were told another comes in. He had made five minas. And he gets set over five cities. The principle that Jesus is driving home at in this particular section is that those who are faithful in small ways will be blessed eternally in big ways. Now the Bible doesn't go into specifics on what these eternal rewards are. It doesn't matter, frankly. They're from God and they're eternal. Whatever they are, trust me, they'll be great. They'll be good. Have you ever considered this, friend? That how we live today matters for that day? We ought never to consider as Christians that the activities that we do are insignificant eternally. That the mundary, the the kind of monotony of life, everything matters. Every passing word matters. Every deed done in the flesh matters. Friend, there is coming a day when the books will be opened. When when Jesus will say, all right, let's assess your life. I remember as a young child, remember those... um, the little gospel tracts that we used to pass out? Perhaps you, you've had seen them. I remember as a young boy, there was one with this like movie and you, you know, Jesus is going through your life. And I remember that sort of frightened me a bit um, that Jesus was going to take an assessment of all my life. I had to relive every poor decision I've ever made. It sort of uh, shocked me into maybe obedience a bit. I don't know, but, but it is just true. There, there is a sense in which there's coming a day, as we heard earlier in John chapter 5, where there'll be a resurrection of everyone. Everyone gets resurrected. There's a resurrection of life and a resurrection of death. And everyone will be assessed and, and everyone will have to have an accountability, an accounting. Isn't it encouraging to know that when you sacrifice for Jesus in this life, that you will be richly rewarded in the next? That those hours of tireless study of God's Word so that you can teach a Sunday school lesson, that you can help someone follow Jesus, that those tireless times of discipling an immature Christian to be more and more mature, those tireless times where you, you prayed over your children and grandchildren and the lost around you, that those were not wasted times, that those times will be rewarded. 
Consider this fact that eternity is a fixed place. There's no do-overs. I doubt that any of us, if we make it to heaven and are in eternity, will ever regret a moment spent seeking and saving the lost. No doubt I meant many of us that are unknown and unnamed and never have positions like a pastor where they have the privilege of preaching will be rewarded more richly because of their faithfulness to share the gospel with those around them. It is a reminder that those that are least are first in the kingdom of God. Paul makes clear this point in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Or as John records in Revelation 22 and verse 12, Behold, I am coming soon, Jesus says, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. There is coming a a payment day. A day where those who are faithful will be richly rewarded. Brothers and sisters, remain faithful to Christ and the family business and you will, you will gain riches beyond all comparison. You will gain that which will never wear out, that which will never be taken away. When Christ returns, brothers and sisters, He says He will reward those who have been faithful To invest in kingdom work. Never doubt your investment in kingdom work that you will one day be richly rewarded. Well, if the faithful are rewarded, we see then also that the foolish are punished. The faithful are rewarded and the foolish are punished. There was yet one more man that needed to come before the king. Look there at verse 20. Then another servant came and saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I have laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. Now up until this point, in our limited knowledge of this particular king, has he proven himself to be an unjust king? Not at all. He has proven himself to be quite generous. A man who made him ten minus, he gave him ten cities. A man who made him five minus, gave him five cities. This man is lavishing blessing upon blessing to these people. This was this man's understanding of this king. It appears from his own confession that he did not know the king like these other servants did. It seems as if his own words are confessing that he was probably more a part of the crowd who did not want him to be king. He is rejecting this man as Lord, even as he confesses him as Lord in verse 20. 
Verse 22, he says, I will condemn you. The, the, the master, the, the king says, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. I think Jesus wants us to understand that this is not just an unfaithful disciple. This is a pretend disciple. This was somebody who had received something that was not theirs. That's why it's taken from them and given to the one who made the ten. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. In other words, he says to the man, if you really believed this about me, then it should have affected your behavior. No one who rightly understands who Jesus is continues to disobey him. Let me say that again. No one who rightly understands who Jesus is continues to disobey him. For when you rightly understand that He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, when you rightly understand that He is coming to judge the living and the dead, then your response, if you rightly understand that, your mind, your, your thinking clearly, then your only response is to beg for His mercy and His grace. You would never dare stand up to Him like this servant does. The nobleman asked him, why didn't you at least just invest my money in the bank? I could have received it with some interest. Why didn't you just do the bare minimum? The very basic. You wouldn't have done anything. You could have just simply made interest for doing nothing. Ultimately, this man is punished for his unfaithfulness, along with, as we see there in verse 27, those who Jesus says are enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here, and slaughter them before me. Those who foolishly rejected this nobleman were executed. Those who foolishly reject Jesus as king will one day face an eternal judgment in a place called hell. The Bible makes clear that hell is a real place, a place of torment, conscionable torment. Jesus uses illustrations like fire. I don't believe hell is literally a place of fire. It is an illustration. Jesus uses the illustration of it is a place where the worm does not die. It is a place where the worm continues to eat the flesh of those who are there perpetually into the future. It's a picture of torment, of suffering and anguish. It is not a place, the Bible paints a picture where we think lightly of it. I hope you go to that place, we say. No one who has ever visited that place would ever, ever desire that for any other human being. It is a place, I want you to think for a moment, where there is no do-over. There is no grace. There is no atoning work of Christ. There is no forgiveness. It is forever. It is forever. Do you think that the pleasures that you're enjoying now will be worth it? 
Do you really think that the pleasures of sin that you now enjoy in this life, that in a trillion years of torment and suffering and pain will be worth the 80 plus years of fun you had on earth? Will it be worth it? The years you lived in rebellion against Jesus, refusing that He would be your King? Friend, He is King. He is the one who rules and reigns over all. And He came to die the death that you deserved so that you don't have to face eternal judgment. He was judged so that that place of judgment you will never have to see. But it's only for those who repent. That is, stop living your way. Stop going your way. Friend, if you continue to go your way, you will receive the just punishment that your way deserves. But if you'll turn and trust in Christ, friend, this future that's described here doesn't have to be your future. Trust in Christ and be saved. Brothers and sisters, let us take comfort and know that Judgment Day is coming. We ought as Christians to take comfort in this. There is coming a day where evil and wickedness and rampant rebellion will be dealt with. All of the evil that you faced in your life, all of the evil done to you, will one day be dealt with. If you've suffered injustice, the just judge will say that all things will be made right and he will condemn wickedness. This is why the Bible tells us to avoid vengeance. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Brother, sister, be encouraged that every injustice that you've witnessed in your short life will one day be dealt with with the only judge that is just. The only judge that has seen all the wrong and wickedness done in this world and he will, like this nobleman, call forward the offenders and say, slaughter them before me. And do so forever and ever. Let us continually entrust ourselves to this good judge, to this good God. It is a reminder also in this passage that greater stewardship comes to the faithful. That those who are stewards of the word, stewards of the responsibilities, will be rightly blessed. Jesus said this earlier in Luke chapter 12. Everyone to whom much is given of of him much will be required. Friend, if you're here today, I hate to break it to you, but if you're not a Christian, Judgment Day has just gotten worse for you. And here's why. You have just heard something that there are countless millions of people in this world who will live 
and die without hearing the gospel. You will now be responsible before Jesus. You won't stand before Jesus and say, well, I never knew. I didn't know. No one ever told me. And, and Jesus will say to you, yes, that church told you. Those people around you in your life told you. Don't tell me you didn't know. You knew. And you willfully refused and disobeyed me. But as Christians, the, the truth is the same. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. Friend, if you are a Christian today, you have a stewardship which is yours and which you will be held accountable to. Pastor Mike McKinley captures this point well when he says, if you are a follower of Christ, every aspect of your life is a gift given to you for the purpose of investment. The place where you live, the job where you work, your weekends, the abilities and educations that you have received, your money, your health, your family, your interactions with people who do not believe in Jesus, your sufferings, all of it is given to you as a stewardship. You are not free, he says, he writes, to use those things for your own purposes or to neglect them altogether. We will ultimately give account for the way we use what our Master has given us. Friend, how are you using these precious resources? Every one of us is on a diminishing trajectory. No one in this room will live forever on earth. Your time is limited. You only have a small time to steward this. Don't put it off. Don't always rely on tomorrow. Only today is what we are promised. One of life's greatest lessons to learn is that everything we do matters. Friend, leave here with that truth in your mind. Meditate on that for just a moment this afternoon. That everything you do matters. Look around you. See the people around you. The, the neighbors around you. The co-workers around you. The children around you. The grandchildren around you. Nothing is an accident, friend. Everything has been purposed by a sovereign God and you're accountable for all of it. There is nothing that will go, go unnoticed or unaccounted when Jesus returns. He will return. And friend, I hope that you leave here today with this point fixed in your mind that how you live today matters for that day. Do not let that day be a day of regret, a day of sorrow, a day of anguish. When that day comes, friend, there will be no do-overs, no second chances, no explanations, just the facts. And the consequences will be many. Imagine again, a trillion years from now, with eternity now fixed, Will you be in sorrow for the choices you made today? 
Or will you be an endless joy for the investments that you made? Be a good steward. Remain faithful by stewarding your time and talents and resources for the King. And friend, trust that He will richly reward you. Let's pray.